Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Apologies that I've been starting uh, late each of these days is because I've been finishing the last class late. So let's continue right where we left off. So to, to recap, yesterday we spent uh, the, the focus of our time on Ayah 25 and looked at it as a third command from Allah. The first command is be the abd of your rub. The second command is do not knowingly make rivals to him. Then we had two conditional commands. One, if you have doubt, here's your prescription. And then number two, um, once you've gone through the prescription, part two of the prescription is now work to develop taqwa. And then the third command, which was to give good news to those who believe and do right, that they will have gardens beneath which rivers flow and so forth and so on. So the first two commands were related to our relationship with Allah. And then the second command is our relationship with the community of believers. And so what's built in again to this point, I made the point earlier that how you perceive the ummah often says more about you than the ummah. And so now we're also given instruction on how to especially look at the ummah, where you're looking, you're focusing on the good things, the right things that people are doing. And the more you do that, the more it's actually going to affect what we call your neural pathways. When you're looking specifically for the good, it's kind of like you have one person who is looking for the dark cloud and you have another person who's looking for the silver lining. And the person who's in the habit of looking for the dark cloud will often even be a more negative, unhappy person. The person who's looking for the silver lining is going to be more of a hopeful person. And so this is also affecting not just how do we speak with members of the Ummah, but what should we look for in the members of the Ummah? And again, there is a place to call to what is right, forbid what is wrong and such. But our default should be that when we see good happening, to appreciate it as well as express prayers and praise for those things. Now, having said that, we're shifting gears in this subsection. So let me first draw... Uh, in fact, uh, let's look at the ayah and then I'll draw. All righty, so once again, nod, let me know you can see the whiteboard. Okay, very good, inshallah. So this is, yes, this is the other class. So when we look at ayah six or 26, as I'm pulling this up, you know, many of you are familiar with it. In Allah Alayastahi and Yadriba Mathalama Baudatam Kamathalfaha. Right here. Okay. So, one of the criticisms that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was receiving in Medina, especially, was that, <clears throat> you know, that your approach, meaning speaking to the Prophet, Speaking about Allah is very different, if not peculiar, in the sense that Allah is so high, there is nothing higher, yet you, your Quran, is speaking about these things that are insignificant, right? You know, we have a Surah An-Namal, the ant, we have Surah An-Nahal, the bee, we have Surah Al-Ankabut, the spider. And so we have all these mentions of things that seem to be insignificant. Of course, today we have that fake line from Einstein, but still it's a line of wisdom, that if you get rid of all the bees, then four years later, all of civilization is going to die. 
right? Some of you might have heard this um, to make the point of how valuable the environment and how valuable the bees are, but apparently I never said it and there's no data to support it. But the point is we have much more of a sense today of how everything in nature is intertwined, that if you get rid of something, others, other aspects of nature will suffer. And so when an animal goes extinct, it's not merely the, the fact that the animal is going extinct. What are the other consequences in the whole environmental cycle? So we do have a little bit of a different understanding, but today, but still there's this notion that, okay, the Quran is speaking about such tiny little insignificant things. And then the response that the prophet received was Allah does not feel shy. And we'll talk about what that means in citing any parable, in drawing comparisons, even with something as small as a net or larger, the believers know it is truth from their Lord, but the kafirs say, what does Allah mean by such comparisons? And through it, he makes many go astray and leads many to the right path but it's only the rebels he makes go astray. We'll talk about that part. We may not get to it. Uh, we may not get to the second half today. We'll see. But this first part. So what was the response? That it is not beneath Allah to talk about these insignificant things. Why? Why would that make sense? That it's not beneath Allah to talk about bugs or mosquitoes or spiders or bees or ants. What do you think? They they are all creation of Allah and they they do ibadah to Allah in the same fashion that we do. So all I mean not the same fashion that we do. I haven't seen I, mean, <laughs> I haven't seen ants means, uh, you know, fasting, but yeah. Not literally physically. Yeah. Literally yeah, means so, like but they have their own way of uh, communication with Allah. Mm -hmm. So one aspect is absolutely this that uh, you know that they're creations of Allah and that um, that they all praise Allah, even if we can't understand the praise and what Asha is saying, it's also emphasizing their importance. It's drawing importance to things that seem to be, to be uh, 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 drawing importance to things that people seem to think are irrelevant. And then a question I received, is it wrong to say as creation, they are an extension of Allah? I would probably modify that, that language a little bit um, because if we say they're ex an extension of Allah, it sort of says that Allah has a beginning and, and an end. This is a question I just received directly. Uh, okay, but even simpler than that, Allah can do whatever he wants. And so it is not beneath Allah to talk about bugs. It's Allah is to, the one to determine what is appropriate for Allah to speak about. And so, yeah, all your points were actually 100% correct. And I'm saying even more simply than that, Allah is free to do as he wills. He's free to seek, uh, to, to, seek what he does. This is also an interesting thing that you'll find in the case with some agnostics. So, so uh, who can tell us the difference between, what is the difference between an agnostic versus an atheist? Anyone? Agnostic is not sure. Yeah, agnostic is saying maybe there is, maybe there isn't. So agnos literally means without knowledge. And then atheist means there's no God. And then there tend to be two types of atheists. One type is basically saying, I don't believe there's a God. Another type tends to be what we'd call anti-theist, which is against anyone who believes any sort of belief in a God. Whereas agnostics, 
or saying, I don't know. But what you'll find among many agnostics are some who say that, okay, God is so high and so majestic, it is beneath God to answer my prayers. Which, if you think about God's majesty and such, at first it seems like it makes sense. But we are saying, no, Allah has determined that, no, I can ask Allah about anything, even things that are insignificant. So if I literally see an ant crossing a street, it is perfectly fine and good for me to pray to Allah to take care of that ant. Right? And so, so the point is that Allah determines what is appropriate for Allah and not. And so we're being taught, no, they're uh, speaking about a bug is not beneath Allah. And all the points you raise, it's a creation of Allah anyway. And so Allah, in the same way we made a point earlier, that the fact of your creation means that you have value. The fact of an ant's creation also means that the ant has, has value. Maybe be different than the value of a human, but it's still value. Now, when we're saying Allah does not feel shy, this is also a very interesting point. Is this la yastahi is similar, that root word that we think of when we think of hayat, when we think of modesty and such. And so when we think of the conduct of a king, uh, you know, our society, especially American society, and a few of you are, are in Canada, but, you know, the, the president of the, of the nation is a civilian, just like all the rest of us. Whereas the philosophy of a king, a monarch, is that the monarch is a different, almost a different status of human being. And the way in our society we look at celebrities, right, we often look at them as a different status of human being. People will race to be able to have contact with a celebrity. That's what uh, a monarch often is. And in fact, uh, when you look at books on advice to kings, not just in European kings, but even, even Muslim, traditional Muslim books on advice to kings, there's this notion that you have to present yourself as separate from the people. So if you go to the Topkapi Palace in Turkey, you'll see this place where the Sultan is being advised by his ministers. And these are the ministers, and they had to talk to the Sultan from behind a curtain. You know, which is very different than how we imagine a king or a, a president or a governor. And so there's also rules for how a king should conduct themselves, like the type of modesty that a king should have. And that's sort of the language that's being used here, that, that it should be beneath a king to talk about certain things. But we are being taught, but it's not beneath a lot to talk about these things. See the point? that uh, at one level we're saying it's not beneath Allah to talk about these things, but even when we're speaking about how a king conducts himself, Allah is the king of all kings, that it is not beneath, Allah is not too modest to speak about these things. And there's another point to take from all this, related to Asha's point to emphasize their importance, is that nothing in creation is unimportant. Everything in creation has a level of importance. Naturally, we don't have the time, the capacity to give everything maximum importance. We even have difficulty doing that with our relationships. But a point to consider is that all that is in creation 
animate and inanimate, living and not living, is important. And so, especially living things, especially humans, and above humans would be especially prophets. So a way to think about this in the hierarchy of value is you have non-living things like rocks, mountains, or at least non-living things. And then you have plants, then you have animals, then you have humans, and then you have prophets. And then above that, you have messengers. And then above that, you have the, the for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them elite prophets or elite messengers. So think of this as the hierarchy of creation. And we're saying everything that I just wrote, all of it is sacred by default. All of it is by default good. All of it is by default sacred. The elite prophets would be whom? Anyone? Prophet Muhammad, obviously, peace be upon him. Who else? Isa and uh, Hazrat Musa, Ibrahim, uh, and then Ismail, Noah. Uh, usually Nuh or Dawood. So yeah, usually. No. No. So all the lists will say Muhammad is sort of at the top, and then you have Jesus, Moses, peace be upon them, Ibrahim, and then either people say Nuh or they'll say Dawood. Uh, it's sort of like the super prophets. And, and again, what makes them super prophets? Just the higher status that Allah Ta'ala has given them. And even the prophet Muhammad cautions us against elevating him above, for example, Musa, because there's this point where Prophet Muhammad says that he is doing this sajda on the day of judgment. And then he gets up and he's going to see that Musa is standing at the throne of, of Allah. And he doesn't know when he got there. So it may be that Musa has different status. But the point is that these are often categorized as like the super prophets. And so everything that I just wrote in that chat, all those things are considered to be sacred. But how we conduct ourselves with these different sacred things will, will, will be different. Obviously, we, can't, we can eat animals. You know. and, so, and so from there, then what else are we saying? That uh, the fact that Allah speaks and teaches this way by these parables, by these metaphors, is teaching us that everybody has access to advanced levels of the deen, regardless of career, education level, socioeconomic status, that you can have a person who is unable to read or write can have a very advanced level of understanding of the deen. When you're becoming a scholar, in theory, you're being taught how to have that, but a person can develop that through reflection, through these passages. And so this becomes also a statement against the idea of clergy in our tradition and also elevating the role of the layperson. So there's this famous story, and I don't remember if I shared it. Yeah, I think, anyway, so of Fakhradina Razi, who we might have talked about when we were talking about doubt. Fakhradin al-Razi, sometimes attributed to him, where walks out of this building and says, I have figured out 10,000 proofs against doubts in Allah, proofs for the existence of Allah. And then there's this woman 
these women who are who are sewing, who are not sewing, but they're they're spinsters making clothing. And then she says, okay, that's only useful for someone who has 10,000 doubts in a love. Then in some version of the story, he says that I, I seek to have the faith of these old spinsters. They didn't need all these proofs. And so there is a role of the scholars. They're the heirs to the prophets, peace be on. They are the primary teachers. They're the carriers of the tradition. And yet you can have a very advanced depth, uh, deep relationship with Allah without any action, access to scholars. Of course, when you have teachers, then you're probably going to save a lot of time rather than trying to figure out things uh, yourself. But the point is that they are experts as opposed to your specific doorway to God. And then we have a basic relationship we should have with Revelation. So, as for those who believe, so they know that this is all this is all truth from their Rabb. So here I have the bare minimum relationship that I should have with the Quran. That even if I understand it or not, even if I understand this passage quite a bit, that passage not at all, I not only regard all of it as truth from Allah, but again, we're mentioning Allah's Rabb, that it's nourishing truth. So just like when I spoke about the first command, isn't just be the Abd of Allah, it's be the abd of your rub, meaning you're having this attitude that I will do whatever Allah asks me to do, and I'm going to see it as beneficial, nourishing for me. This is the basic attitude that we should have towards the Quran, that we see all of it as truth. Prior to me uh, figuring out what it means, and it's beneficial to me. The truth is automatically beneficial as opposed to falsehood, but... I also see it as nurturing. That think of you know scripture. You know at the beginning of the whole course, I said scripture operates like science fiction, in the sense of telling you here's how reality operates. But scripture then says here's how reality operates, and here's how to live through it, how to guide yourself through it. So think of science fiction plus a self help book. That's sort of how scripture operates. Except it's not science fiction or fantasy. It's nonfiction, right? Or claims to be nonfiction. <clears throat> And so here, your basic relationship with the text is that you regard it as truth and that it is nurturing. It is beneficial for you. But then in contrast, as for those who have rejected, they say, what does Allah want to say or what is Allah trying to say with this example? Okay, so here's the question. Isn't that a question I've been asking for, for pretty much every passage? What does Allah seem to be saying? You know, so how is the question that I'm raising or the question that we often raise when we're exploring the Quran different than what they're asking here? That over and over again, I'm asking, you know, what does this seem to mean? What does this seem to say to you? What does Allah seem to be saying here? And that's exactly what they're asking. What does Allah intend by this, with this example? How is it different? Okay, so it seems you're saying attitude. Please explain more. 
I think what uh, they're actually questioning the purpose of mentioning about these examples. Uh, it's not like they're asking a question to know, they're asking a question to question it. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I would say exactly that. Uh, likewise, uh, same with uh, what Nader is saying. And then this also a message that I received directly. They're questioning validity, we're asking wisdom. So, because these people have already rejected. And so they're already saying, I don't believe this. And then they're saying, what is, what is Allah trying to say? So it's almost as though they're mocking. As opposed to us, when we're engaging, we're trying to get closer to Allah as we're asking, well, what does this seem to be saying? And we're looking for any nuggets of wisdom, any nuggets of guidance that can help us get closer to Allah or get better at seeking how to get closer to Allah. Yeah, so it's fundamentally, it's a fundamental difference in attitude. And, and then this other question that I received directly, this might be me overthinking, but Allah's controller of all correct, yes. It, it says he only makes the sinful people go astray. However, wasn't this already predestined? That part we will get when we're going to add the next eye to it. Uh, Nether. Yeah, um, this kind of relates back to a question I had about the, the lecture that we had on doubt. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question is how... How do you discern between doubt and maybe like a lack of understanding? So, um, you we talked about like the prescription for doubt. So let's say there's just something I don't understand in the dean. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, like I guess like in my heart, I'll accept it as true, but um, intellectually speaking, it just uh, doesn't click in my mind. Is yeah. do you go through the prescription for doubt or? Is it just a matter of addressing that one small thing that doesn't make sense? So, so yeah, I would say, as you just illustrated at the end, they are two different things. Because the prescription for doubt is essentially talking about the whole package. Right? And, and think of doubt as a type of feeling of the heart, which feels differently than not understanding something. So, for example, uh, the marriage of the prophet, peace be upon, peace be upon him, to Aisha. Yeah. Right, so how old is she? Was she that young? Okay. And then, so that'll be something that some people struggle with, yet still regard the prophet wholeheartedly as the messenger of Allah and the Quran as the, as the revelation of Allah. Right? Whereas for someone else, that is something that's pushing them out of the deen. And they need their hearts to be satisfied. And, and so, so doubt is this feeling where you're wondering, okay, is this all fake? Whereas when, what, the, uh, what you're speaking about is, okay, I don't understand how this works. And hopefully at some point I will. So there's a hope and a trust that it does make sense that you just don't have, you know, you have enough knowledge or, or understanding for how it makes sense. That makes sense to me. Does the latter, can the latter lead to the former? If you don't address like that small thing that doesn't make sense to you eventually lead to doubt? Um, I would guess, because uh, it is sort of like an abstract discussion at this point, I would guess that if I have doubts somewhere else in my heart, um, then anything else that I'm uneasy about then starts becoming fuel for doubt. 
Got so it. maybe I don't, maybe I'm wrestling with, with at this moment, I'm wrestling with, you know, how do we have free will and predestination at the same time? But for me, it doesn't feel like an issue of doubt, but at the same time, in a different part of my head, okay, how does, how does Allah uh, allow concubines? And, and so that is something that I'm really struggling with. And then if that's place that's feeding doubt, then it might seep into everything else where I'm not solid. Exactly. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Thank you. Yeah. The key point being that doubt is a little bit different than lack of understanding. Doubt is almost like a force pushing you out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and so this is the, the basic uh, relationship we have with, with the text. And then we talked about the coffers. And the end of the ayah, يُدِلُّ بِهِ kafira wa بِهِ kafira. So he lets many go astray with it. And it is understood within the text being these parables or the Quran itself. And so he lets many go astray through this and he guides many through this. So how would the Quran be a tool for someone to go astray? Any thoughts? And it's it's actually pretty pretty easy. So Isa, take your point further in terms of misinterpreting it. Like explain further. First of all, it's a, it's a matter of belief or disbelief, actually, not belief, disbelief. When you disbelieve, uh, ultimately you will be uh, falling into that path where you will be stray, mm-hmm. right? And the more you will, uh, in the in the state of disbelief, the more you are going to uh, to to trying to contemplate with the. With, the, the the ayahs it won't help you actually you may be ending up more uh so this is one thing yeah so so we see this uh, with islamophobes right that will often point look at this ayah look at that ayah look at this hadith, exactly hadith, you know as proof that islam is savagery or bad or whatever whatever the case may be yeah so that's so you approach. start yeah. to seeing those things that you wish you see in the state of disbelief and yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, as I was saying, some people can misinterpret the Quran to hurt others. Absolutely, right? If I wanted to argue that the Quran is a book of peace, uh, can I argue that pretty well? Yeah, absolutely. If I wanted to argue that the Quran is a book of war, can I argue that? Yeah, definitely. I would say, believing that I'm being objective, that the Quran overwhelmingly is speaking about peace and even is speaking about war in the context of peace. But nevertheless, there are passages very directly about war, even in this surah that we're not going to get to toward the end of the surah. Or if you look at Surah Tawbah, Surah Al-Anfal, literally one chapter is called The Spoils of War. And, and so I can force the Quran to meet what mean whatever I want it to say. Because I can find an ayah to fit it this way or that way. So in the same way that I mentioned that 
how I look at the Ummah is reflecting something about me. How I'm looking at the Quran is also reflecting something about me. So I actually counted. If you look at all the measure, all the references to heaven and all the references to hell in the Quran, which do you think are more? Any guesses? Heaven. We all like to say heaven, but they're all the same. Like literally the number of times heaven mm -hmm. is mentioned, the number of times hell is mentioned, I literally went through and counted and it's the same amount. But the one I notice more might be speaking more about me. So if I'm noticing hell more, 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 that might be saying something more about me than the text. If I'm noticing hell, heaven more, 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 that might be telling me something more about me than about the text itself because it's literally the same amount. And so, so yeah, and so I'm also bringing myself, we call this pretext, to the text. And so the goal, and this is, uh, this, is uh, uh, this was also stated when I used to take English uh, classes. Here's an English major, those those even in the previous class. But you know, when the teacher said you submit to the text, meaning you're entering the world of the text. Obviously, we only submit to Allah. You, you're entering the world of the text and letting the text tell you here's the world that you're in and here's the characters and such. Sort of, and that's essentially what we're trying to do with the Quran. And then what else do we have? Uh, and then as I said, we talked about loyalty turning to virginity from colonialism. Maybe, yeah, the translation that translates things as loyalty to virginity can make some women turn away. Absolutely. And so, yes, so that the Quran can be used to lead people to Allah and it can be used to mislead people. And here, Allah is saying through it, Allah lets many go astray. And he guides many. We're not beginning to wonder if we can apply this to anyway. Okay. So, but then there's a there's also a promise at the end. So so he does not let anyone go astray. But we're gonna stop here on a cliffhanger and we'll talk about this inshallah tomorrow. It's already at 6.30. Good. Any questions about anything? No questions. All righty. So tomorrow we're going to add I-26 to 27. And then it'll make a, a whole lot more sense. But we'll talk about what is a faucet. Uh, Iqbal, were you about to say something? Yeah. So one of the questions from the previous class uh, regarding you mentioned about the Prophet is the master manager, right? Yeah. And if he could manage uh, Umar and Hazrat Abu Bakr, then he could. So, what what context you were saying? Can you elaborate on that? Like, I mean, they were tough to manage, or what? I'm saying that they have such big, big personalities that either of them could have been the head of a nation. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, made them both, you know, the best subordinates, and then made Omar. Uh, you know, a double subordinate, first to the Prophet, peace be upon him, then to Abu Bakr. And that seems to be the case of a lot of the people of the Quraysh. These are people with big, giant personalities. Khalid bin Walid has a huge personality. Amr bin As has a huge, huge personality. And so the Prophet as a master manager 
was able to keep all of these huge personalities together. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so with that, another side question that among the, all the sincere Sahaba, they are sincere to the cause, but it's still giving hard time to the Prophet. We don't have any example like that, right? So what's interesting is in the Hadith literature, when someone is giving a hard time to the Prophet, usually their name is not saved. And maybe at most their tribe is mentioned, but often that's not the case either. Like anytime you see a, a Hadith with a Sahabi giving a hard time to the Prophet or sharing a sin, usually their name is not saved. And that seems to go all the way back to the Sahaba themselves, not saving these names, even though they might remember who it is. Nether. Um, this might be a technical point, but um, is there, like, based on how we discussed the last part of the ayah, that um, what people bring to the Quran kind of reaffirms what's already in their heart, but kind of the ayah reads more that um, God misguides them rather than they misguide themselves. Mm -hmm. um, anything to be said about that? So that part we will we will address more, inshallah, tomorrow. Like as a sneak preview, if you look at Ayah 27, uh, we'll have attributes of the people who are being categorized here as Fasid. Got it. So that part will make more sense because that's also a question I received here somewhere about, about people being predestined. And so that'll, that'll uh, uh, it'll make a lot more sense, inshallah, tomorrow. Thank you. And even notice the language that I use. Often I, I'm saying Allah lets them go astray as opposed to saying Allah misleads them. And that's more a matter of adab with Allah. Got it. Any other questions about anything at all? Uh, another question I received directly. Uh, do you meet with students over the summer or are you off? No, I do meet students over the summer. So separate from these classes. Any other questions about anything at all? Okay, so we'll get into 26 and 27, and then we'll also start fitting all of IS 21 through 29 together as a section. And to, we call this like the foundational concepts, foundational commands to see what is also common in what we've been discussing from IA 21 all the way through now, all the way through IA 29, inshallah, too. That we probably won't get to until later. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention to the previous class, we do have class tomorrow, but we will not have class on Thursday, inshallah. We have to go talk at a different thing. So we will meet tomorrow, inshallah. But hopefully I'll remember to tell you all not to show up for class on Thursday, which means don't press on. Alrighty, if there are no other questions, then we will stop here, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. May Allah ta'ala reward you all. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.